Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back, Spiranormal Minions. <laughs> yeah! Yes! <laughs> now that is hype. It's much better than what we did before. Yes. <laughs> yes, I like the theme there. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, uh, as guys, we are uh, back at Spiranormal. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, last week, time we had on Mr. Robert Hyde. We had a, a good show. Mm-hmm. And tonight we have on uh, Mr. Rob Skiba. We're going to be talking about Nephilim and Archons and gods and all sorts of stuff. In the land of Geffen. <laughs> <laughs> the land of Geffen. <laughs> well, anyway, Luke, you tell me about, so before we get started with him, you kind of tell me about something you've watched on... Uh, on YouTube, a little uh, yeah documentary about Liberia with uh, General Char- Beef Eater. Charming place. Oh yeah, wouldn't you want to go? Oh yeah, I I just I never really expected to see anything like that in the world. I mean, I I can't believe that people can act that way toward each other. I mean, you put everyone's in a society that's so desperate. You know, everyone's starving, everyone's yeah. poor. Uh, so the the documentary is um, Liberian, the Cannibal Warlords of Liberia is what it was called, I think, right? Because you watched it too. I watched a little bit of it, not the whole thing. Yeah, and um, it's just showing you the living conditions in Liberia, and uh, it's showing you kind of like the war factions that divide the uh, country, and it introduces you to some of the warlords who are also cannibals. Yeah, and one of the guys that he that the uh, documentarians are following his name is General Beefeater. General Beefeater, <laughs> because of the people he's eaten, they they still believe in their backwards culture that, you know, eating hearts makes you bulletproof. Wow. So, yeah. But could you imagine? 
having to like survive in a society like that that's just like falling apart that they can't help itself like, I'm, I'm not sure about the growing conditions uh, gardening like what's stopping them from gardening I may be I may be just like well I mean, I'm sure you're about. not seeing I think in the, in, the, in the I mean in the video or thing in the city uh, for the most part you could call it, if you want to call it a city yeah it's just like ruins yeah it's, it's like it's like a shanty town <laughs> yeah Makes you really glad that you're living in living in the good U.S. of A. Yes, right? exactly. I was proud to be an American after watching that. I mean, throughout the entire documentary, there's just dead bodies littering the ground. Oh, lovely! <laughs> in, in different stages of decomposition, and uh, they were talking about how the most destitute people were digging up uh, freshly dead people and eating them. Ugh. Yeah, and uh, one guy was demonstrating how to slice open a child to get to his heart the easiest way. <laughs> I mean... That's nice. Right. Lovely. Um, and, and another part of it... Uh, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> it's just it's just so horrific. It, you don't want to go on. <laughs> right. It's terrible. Yeah. Well, just been working uh, hard on getting some guests in. Uh, we're going to get a guest schedule for a few weeks. Uh, Two weeks from now is Super Bowl, so uh, I'll be off. Uh, we're not going to be doing it that week, so about uh, about three weeks from now, we're going to have on another guest. But uh, just been trying to hard trying to get get guests on. Uh, thinking about possibly getting uh, heard an interview with this guy named Corvus Nocturnum, and he's a member of the Church of Satan. Sweet. I'm thinking about getting him on. Let's get let's get a Satanist on here. That's all. That's the only thing we haven't had on. <laughs> awesome. It'll be like metal for you. Yes. You get you get to open the show with metal and close it with metal and everything. It'd be sweet. And maybe we could... with like some burism or something like that. <laughs> uh, well, I wonder if he's got a hand in that satanic statue in front of the courthouse steps. In, oh yeah, uh, in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, the the proposed Satanist statue, yeah. the statue of Baphomet. Yeah, and supposedly it's like uh, I heard something that uh, this is for like a place for like children to go and sit on Baphomet's knee. I don't. I didn't hear about the children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> um, that what I read said that. Uh, because they already have the Ten Commandments, like a big statue of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, it's out been there the for court. a while. Yeah, yeah, and um, the the Satanist group. I guess they got a strong presence there in Oklahoma City, oh. but <laughs> actually, that's one of the satanic capitals of the nation, isn't it? Oklahoma City. Yeah, I think I heard something I mean, like that. I never heard anything about that. But um, they're just proposing to build the Baphomet statue because you know the Ten Commandments are Christian, so. Yeah, yeah they want to have something to counter it. So, right. Something tells me I doubt it's going to be built there. <laughs> yeah, of course. The big statue but of Baphomet. It is causing a lot of hype, though. Like you've got you've got people from all over the nation mailing him. It said in the article, like praising him and doing, uh, 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 offering money. Like all yeah. you know, richer people are offering money to help out the project and everything. So. Well, I'm just be curious as to get somebody on like that that uh, can talk about what they believe. And this, of course, is like the. The Anton LaVey Satanist stuff, which mm -hmm. is more like they believe that Satan is just a metaphor. Yeah. Uh, and they're pretty much really like atheists, but they still need like ritual in their lives. That's what kind of what I gather from this interview that I heard. 
Yeah, that makes sense. These aren't the real guys, the ones that like you, you know, the ones you like that that uh, live in Sweden and oh yeah, the ones that actually like dig bathe up in, bathe in fire and stuff they, like they that. They dig up corpses and put them on the stage during their metal shows. That's oh, lovely. <laughs> Man, it must be it must be a awesome like I, I remember going to this uh, <clears throat> actually seeing somebody speak at this uh, it's a uh, at the time it was an the church called the Anchor. And uh, yeah. the guy told me that it used to be a black metal club. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. The anchor did. Yeah. Uh, like uh, over in uh, downtown Nashville. Huh. It was like it was a church at one point, and then it got turned into a black metal it, club, it does and now look, it's a church again. It does look really gothic. Like yeah. the architecture of yeah. the building is really gothic. Yeah, it's just an old church from like the 1850s, I think, is as old as it is. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Awesome, man. <laughs> you got to start your own black metal club. There, right. Like, yeah, I got to take it back over again. It's man. a Demi Borgier and then come to Nashville. Go take it take it by force with a small <laughs> militia, man. Convert it back to Satanism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, on that note, we're going to get Rob Skew on here to talk about Christian things. So, uh, guys, we'll be right back uh, to finish it up after we're, our interview with Rob Skiba. I'm sorry for corrupting your show, Rob. Hey, we're back on Conspiranormal. It's, of course, your host, Adam Sane. And your co-host, in case you didn't know, Mr. Lucas Reed. That's right. And on the line, we have Mr. Rob Skiba. Uh, Rob, want to thank you for coming on, the sh- coming on Conspiranormal. Hey. Guys, thanks for having me on. Uh, just kind of briefly, if you can kind of uh, introduce yourself, uh, who you are, how you got involved with some of the subjects that we're going to be talking about tonight. Sure. Uh, well, my name is Rob Skiba, and uh, I grew up in a Christian environment, actually. My dad was a Baptist minister when I was a kid, so I've always been involved in various biblical subjects. Joined uh, the Army and my early teens, or late teens, I guess you would say, right out of high school, a week out of high school, into basic training and served eight years as a uh, helicopter mechanic and then six years as a pilot, six of those eight years, I should say. Got out in 94, got into uh, filmmaking and um, corporate video, did 10 years of corporate video, uh, then ended up being a missionary for six and a half years, and in all of that time, uh, I kept seeing a lot of amazing things all around the world. I've been to over a dozen countries. And one thing you notice is, like, you can go just about anywhere in the world, and you will find that people have some concept, legend, myth, or what have you, regarding giants. And so sooner or later, you got to just realize, you know, here's people from all over the world in different parts of the world who never had contact with each other, all writing about and talking about the same type of thing. Sooner or later, you got to realize there must be some truth to it. And that really began to intrigue me. Oh, I want to say 2000, between 2005 and 2009, uh, I became more and more intrigued with it. And on the last trip that I went to Athens, Greece, I believe it was 2008, it was the second time I'd been there. You can't look anywhere. If you go to Greece, Cyprus, Crete, anywhere in the GNC, in that area there, Almost everywhere you look, you're going to see the toppled remains of a god, uh, you know, a statue of a god or a temple, um, or some representation of an animal-human hybrid, like a satyr or a minotaur or centaurs or things of that nature. And with regard to the animal-human hybrids, uh, it, it was so impressed upon me when I was in Athens that second time that I became convinced that there had to be some truth to that as well. 
So I came home, and I told my wife about it, my kind of working theory that there must have been some truth to those animal-human hybrids. Well, the next, we go to bed. The next morning, she wakes up, checks her email, and uh, she found a, an RSS news feed from a BBC news report that said that scientists had successfully cloned a sheep with a human heart. And the article went on to say, if we keep doing this, eventually the genes are going to fuse together and we're going to end up with animal-human hybrids and have all kinds of ethical issues to deal with after that. Well, that was like the next day after I just told my wife, you know, I think that stuff was real. Well, here we go. It's real. And uh, flash forward another year or two later, uh, I saw an event that took place on December 21st, 2010. Everybody was looking for December 21st, 2012 at that time, you know, the, the Mayan prophecies and all that. I said calendar stone and whatnot. Well, on December 21st, 2010, we're late-nighters, so we went out for a walk at 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, at 2.22 in the morning Central Standard Time, which was 3.22 in the morning Eastern Standard Time, the moon began to turn blood red, and it did so for 72 minutes over the shoulders of Orion. And when you get into mythology, you realize that Orion, of course, that we know Orion is the constellation, the mighty hunter, but Orion uh, is synonymous with Gilgamesh, with Osiris, with, uh, in some cases, Apollo, uh, and biblically speaking, Nimrod. And so, and biblically speaking, Nimrod was decapitated by uh, Esau, and the extra biblical texts tell you that. So I, I had all that in my head when I'm looking up and seeing what looks like a decapitated head floating over the shoulders of Orion for 72 minutes, which is one of those high cult numbers. Well, that was the, the catalyst that sent me into everything that I'm doing today. Um, I came back home really intrigued by what I had seen and, and knew I had to research and figure out what was going on. And of course, it was a lunar eclipse, but th there seemed to be more significance to it. Well, that night, do you know who Dutch Sense is? He's a YouTube user. Uh, no, no, I'm not familiar with him. Well, he does a lot of research into uh, harp activity and chemtrails and things of that nature. Well, he was, I was busy researching what I was looking for, and came across a, a live YouTube feed. He was streaming live, showing that the Internet seismic servers that check earthquake activity around the world, all of them went into black that night, indicating that the entire planet was literally shaking as this blood-red moon was floating over the shoulders of Orion. Simultaneous to that happening, uh, it's nighttime here, or early morning here, on the other side of the world in Iraq, um, they're announcing their full formed government, Nimrod's hometown, saying, hey, we're back in business again. <laughs> uh, and then, like, almost immediately after that happened, we had birds falling from the sky by the tens of thousands. We had fish beaching themselves by the millions. And then they added the 13th sign to the Zodiac, which is Ophiuchus, uh, who is known for raising Orion from the dead. So, <laughs> like, all of that just sent me into a tailspin, and I started blogging in the beginning of 2011, blogged for the whole year. By the end of the year, I decided to see how much I blogged and realized I blogged a thousand pages worth of content. And I thought, oh man, I need to uh, divide this out into books. And, and I've released two books so far on that subject matter. So that pretty much brings us up to date to where we are today. <laughs> so that was kind of the beginning, the catalyst of all the stuff that you've been studying. <laughs> uh, yeah, one thing led to another, like, like create my first blog was seventy two and a red moon rising, but after I wrote that, I realized that there's a to be continued to that. So I wrote the Omega Plan, and after I wrote the Omega Plan, I realized okay, I got to tell a backstory here to set all this stuff up, and that 
brought me all the way back to, you know, ancient times and worked my way forward. So, yeah, that was definitely a catalyst. So let's start with uh, Genesis 6. Sure. Let's start with that as a, as a beginning point. Uh, some people in my audience may not be familiar with it because we're not like a Christian-based show, even though we have a lot of Christian researchers on. Uh, sure. So some of the people in my audience may not be familiar with Genesis 6 and the concept of the Nephilim and how they came about. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I refer to that whole activity as the Genesis 6 experiment. What is that? Well, when you read the Genesis account, you see Genesis 6, 1 through 4 tells us about an event where angels came down. It's, it says the sons of God which elsewhere in the Bible is a reference to angels. The sons of God came down to the daughters of men, and they had children by them. The same became mighty men, great men of renown, the heroes of old. So uh, those are also known as the Nephilim. And mm-hmm. you, you don't get a, a whole lot of detail in the canonical text. In other words, the, the books that are currently in are, are Protestant Bibles, anyway. But... The, the Ethiopian Coptic Church, for example, uh, still has the Book of Enoch in their canon of Scripture. And you go back through various times in history, you'll see different people thought that it was Scripture. Some people said it wasn't, you know, kind of bounced all over the place. Uh, the early Church Fathers referred to it as Scripture. People like Jude, uh, in his short little book, quoted directly from it. So... Uh, you know, regardless of what people think, whether it should be canonized or not, it's still a highly respected book that a lot of people ha- are very familiar with and were familiar with, especially at the time of Jesus. Well, that book goes into great detail about what happened in Genesis 6, and it goes on to describe 200 watcher-class angels that landed on Mount Hermon, which is in southern Lebanon, uh, northern Israel, in the days of Jared who I think is a uh, great-great-great-grandfather of Noah, if I'm not mistaken. I always forget how many generations okay. before that. But anyway, yeah. he's, he, he's an ancestor to Noah. And uh, so 200 watcher class. We know that there are cherubim and seraphim and archangels, guardian angels, stuff like that. Well, watcher is a class of angels, just like those other ones are classes of angels. And it's actually that class of angel is mentioned in the canonized text of Daniel. So Enoch tells us that 200 of that particular class of angels landed on Mount Hermon in the days of Jared, and they're the ones that mated with women and created these these giant hybrid creatures known as the Nephilim. Is there a connection between, you you mentioned Enoch, the book of Enoch. Uh, is Is there a connection between the Watchers and the Enochian angels that are mentioned in some occult writings? You know, that's a good question. Um, I haven't looked into that, so I'm not really sure, but there are people who are in the occult and in New Age and UFO environments that will refer to them as the Archons. And yeah. Archon is not its not really a mysterious word. It's, just a, it's a Greek word that means uh, chief, ruler, prince, leader, commander with authority. And it's just a word that you would use to describe a leader. So um, the book of Enoch describes 20 to 21 archons that were leaders over the 200. And one of them, uh, being the worst of all, uh, is Azazel, or Azazel, depending on how you pronounce it. He was, according to the book of Enoch, uh, all sin 
was to be ascribed to Azazel, which is really interesting because the canonical text uh, of uh, the the Torah, in fact, uh, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, uh, on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus talks about the various feasts of God in Leviticus 23. And on the Day of Atonement, they would cast lots, one for Yahuwah, Yodhevavhe, and one for Azazel. And now, of course, it depends on your English translation. If you got like King James, it probably says scapegoat. Um, right. But in the Hebrew, it's Azazel or Azazel. And so, and I always found that interesting, is that Moses is writing these books, right? And he throws words out like Nephilim with no further explanation. And that says yeah. to me two things. One, he knew what he was talking about, obviously, and so did his audience, because he felt no need to elaborate on it uh, for his readers. So, and that says to me that they had to have been familiar with uh, probably the Book of Enoch, if not early writings that led to the writing of the Book of Enoch, uh, or at least oral uh, tradition. And uh, he, pull, he pulls out a proper name like Azazel, with no other back history in the canonized text to tell us who Azazel is, you know. Uh, so again, that seems to be, a, a, at least in my mind, endorsement for these other texts that, that these people had to, had to have been aware of. And so, you know, these, these archons, they were well-known in the ancient world. But to answer your question, I'm not sure if they're the same ones. I'm not familiar with exactly what they're referring to uh, as the Anakian angels. I can only assume okay. that that's what they're talking about. Sure. Um, I, I want to talk about a little bit about the archons uh, and their relationship with the Nephilim. It says in the book of Genesis, that the Nephilim were known as the men of old, the men of great renown, yeah. I believe is something around that line. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned the Archons in that same light. So what was kind of the relationship? Uh, were, the, were the Nephilim considered kind of like the gods, and we're saying little g gods here? Yeah. Uh, were they the same as as archons, or are archons, we're talking about two separate different kinds of... of I would say, we're, well, I mean, again, archon is a, a, just a Greek word that would be used for any leader, so whether you're talking about okay. angel, angel, fallen angel, demigod, Nephilim, or just the president of the United States, you know, you'd still be talking yeah. about an archon. So, you know, I just kind of have to differentiate, because in the occult and in the New Age circles, there seems to be this mystique around an archon, but I'm like... It's just a Greek word, you know, it just means leader. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, when you look at the heroes of old great men of renown, I believe that's talking about your uh, y- your classic little g-gods, you know, Kronos, uh, Saturn, Zeus, Jupiter, you know, um, that we read about in the various mythologies. Now, Josephus, he likens the first-generation Nephilim to the titans of Greek mythology. And what's really interesting about that, and it, it appears to be um, validation for that in the ancient text, when you look especially in the Book of Enoch and the Cabra Nagas and some of the other ancient texts that talk about the, the first generation, i.e. The, the generation of Nephilim that were produced by direct uh, angel mating with human. You know, that first generation were massively huge. Enoch says that they were... 3,000 L's, which Dr. A. Nyland in um, Dr. A. Nyland's uh, complete book of Enoch, uh, this person has a footnote regarding the 3,000 L's being 300 cubits, which 
would be 450 feet. Um, interestingly enough, that's the same dimension as the length of the arc. Uh, so I always found that rather interesting. But, you know, we, hear, we look at something like that, 450-foot giant, and we, we can't wrap our head around it. You know, and yeah, that's pretty big. Right. That's like massively huge, and I'm not. I'm not trying <laughs> to say whether that's true or not. I'm just saying, as a researcher, that's what the text tells us. Um, but what's interesting to me is that Hollywood has no problem envisioning that either. Um, you know, the ancients talked about it, but if you've seen Wrath of the Titans, um, that just recently came out. And Zeus and um, Hades have to deal with their father, Kronos, who's just been released from Hades. Um, he's like 450 feet tall. <laughs> he's massively yeah. huge. So, I mean, the, the filmmakers did their research. I mean, they were accurately depicting what the ancient text referred to. And Josephus makes the connection that the titans of the Greek mythology were the equivalent of the first-generation Nephilim. Now, I believe that there were multiple generations of Nephilim, and I, this is why I may differ with some of my colleagues who also s study the same subject. Uh, a lot of researchers think the Nephilim are only the product of angels mating with humans. Um, and I would say that's true, but I would say Numbers 1333 indicates that there are Nephilim that come from other Nephilim as well. Uh, you know, in other words, there can be multiple generations, and it doesn't have to just apply to only the byproduct of an angel mating with a human. Numbers 1333 refers to the Anakim, who were the sons of Anak, who was the son of Arba, who was an Amorite, son of Canaan, son of Ham, who stepped off the ark. So you've got, and that's about 800 years after the flood. So clearly you have multiple generations of uh, Nephilim. And what's interesting to me is, especially as you get into the post-flood era, they're shrinking in size. Pre-flood, they're like incredibly, unimaginably huge. Post-flood, they're still huge, anywhere from 150 feet on the high side to 9 to 12 feet on the Goliath, small side. I would consider him a runt <laughs> uh, yeah. in, in giant terms. So, uh, but it's not just the Greek mythology. You have the Titans and the Olympians and the demigods in the Greek mythology. Uh, the Sumerians, they had the Anunnaki and the Agigi. And even in the uh, extra-biblical Hebrew text, you had the great giants, you had the Nephilim or Nephidim, and the Eljo or the Eliud. So, uh, you know, all of these ancient texts are showing that there are multiple generations of these creatures. When it's going into the watchers coming down, uh, the sons of God, as it's referred to in the book of Genesis, um, are we talking about an actual mating with human beings, or are we talking about some kind of genetic manipulation? That's a great question, uh, and this is where I, again, will differ from some of my other colleagues that study this. I believe that there was only one time in human history where angels ever mated with women, and that was in the days of Jared, in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, a lot of other researchers will, will refer to what I call multiple incursions, that, that there are other incursions of angels that came back after the flood and mated with women again. And the problem I have with that, I used to have that view myself, is that there's absolutely no textual evidence for that, none, including Genesis 6-4, which is the go-to scripture that they will refer to, thinking that, that where it says, and also after that, is a reference to the post-flood world. It's not. It is, all of Genesis 6 is entirely in a pre-flood context. 
Um, we and so in Enoch chapter ten verses nine through uh, twelve tells us that the first generation Nephilim, the Titans, would only live for uh, five hundred years, and within that time period, they were to kill each other off in a massive civil war that the Greeks stylized into what became known as the Clash of the Titans. So mm-hmm. I, I drew up a. Um, a timeline chart, because I'm a visual person, and you know, I'm a filmmaker, so i, I got to see things visually. And right, my, right. I base my timeline on the works of Dr. Ken Johnson, Bishop Usher, Adams Waltrad of World History, and the uh, Genesis chronology. If my timeline is correct, I believe the Genesis 6 experiment took place in 3550 B.C., roughly the ninth jubilee from Adam. If that is correct, then you go forward 500 years, and you start to see a lot of really interesting things happen. First, you got the death of Adam. About 20 years later, you have the end of the 500-year time period where the Clash of the Titans has ended, and all of the first-generation Nephilim are dead. They're gone. That's 700 years before the flood. Okay, And then you have about 20 years after that, you have the Watchers, who are the parents of the first-generation Nephilim, judged, bound, and buried, and then about, again, 20 years or so after that, Enoch is raptured. And then roughly 70 years later, Noah is born, and his daddy names him Rest, because that's what his name means. Uh, which is interesting, because he, Lamech, his name means despairing. Well, he was born during the Clash of the Titans. <laughs> it's a pretty rough time to be born. It makes sense that his dad would name him that. But after it's over, his dad names his kid. Rest again. It kind of makes sense. And what also happens in that same time period, just prior to the death of Adam, the uh, Mayan calendar, the Aztec calendar stone, shows up at 3114 BC. So there's a lot of stuff that happens just prior to the 3000 BC mark. But first generation Nephilim are gone at that point. So you have 700 more years, 600 years from the death or from the birth of Noah until the flood. So that begs the question: What happens? What happened in those 600 years in a pre-flood context that brought back the return of the Nephilim before the flood, which is what the after that of Genesis 6-4 is referring to. It's not talking about after the flood. It's all in a pre-flood context. So, uh, and that's where there's two other extra-biblical texts that I would turn to, and I refer to these as the synchronized, biblically endorsed extra-biblical texts. The reason I call them that is because they are synchronized, telling the same chronological order of events that we find in Genesis. I call them biblically endorsed because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you believe as I do, that all Scripture is divinely inspired by God, you know, through the Holy Spirit and written by men, then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the authors of Scripture refer to these books, they quote from these books, and in some cases mention them by name, such as the book of Joshua. So you have First Enoch, Joshua, and Jubilees. Those three books are referred to as a synchronized, biblically endorsed extra-biblical text, and Joshua 4.18 and Jubilee 7.24 tell us exactly how the uh, Nephilim returned before the flood, and it came as a result of transhuman genetic experimentation. So it's kind of a long answer but uh, to your question, but to answer it, I would say that there was one and only one biblical encouragement of angels mating with women but then you had the return of the Nephilim in, in various variety, from animal-human to just humanoid giants uh, that took place as a result of genetic engineering. And that sort of brings us into our timeline today, where we're seeing that a repeat of that happening today, exactly as it was in the days of Noah, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy 
in Matthew 24, 37, when he says, as it was in the days of Noah, not Jared, when angels made it with women, but as it was in the days of Noah, when genetic experimentation was taking place, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And to validate that, all you have to do is turn on the evening news, <laughs> and you're going to see it happening. So you would say that creatures like centaurs and satyrs and all that kind of thing, that those were actual creatures that were probably genetic manipulation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, if I could quote uh, those two references, um, excuse me, my nose is all stuffed up, so I apologize. <laughs> no problem. No science problem. issues, but um, Joshua 4.18 says, And their judges and rulers went to the daughters of men and took their wives by force from their husbands according to their choice. And the sons of men in those days took from the cattle of the earth the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and taught the mixture of animals of one species with the other in order therewith to provoke the Lord. And God saw the whole earth, and it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth, all men and all animals. And that's, as Paul Harvey would say, <laughs> the rest of the story of Genesis 6.12. Genesis 6.12 says, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So Joshua gave us an elaborated account on how all flesh became corrupted, and Jubilees confirms it in Jubilees 7.24. In a pre-flood context, it says, and after this, again, pre-flood context, the after this of Jubilee 7.24 is exactly the same as the after that of Genesis 6.4. It says, and after this, they sinned against the beasts and the birds and all that moved and walked on the earth, and much blood was shed on the earth, and every imagination and desire of men imagined vanity and evil continually. That explains why Genesis says that men had only evil continuously in their heart and mind. And when I was considering the implications of that, you know, what would, what would cause that? I mean, the Nazis were horrible people, but they still, you know, had tender moments with their spouse or children. You know, they didn't have only evil continually in their heart and mind, you know, 24-7. So I was like, what would cause that? I mean, what would cause, if I take Scripture literally, as I do, then I believe only, you know, means only, and all means all. So if they had only evil continually, what would cause that? And as I was thinking about that, the uh, the last Spider-Man movie came out, and uh, I went to see it, and here you have this scientist, this doctor, who's missing part of his arm. He, had, he was an amputee. He's missing his arm from the elbow down, and he was trying to figure out why is it that you can cut the tail off of a lizard and it grows back? You know, what's the genetic code for, for limb regeneration? And he does a bunch of experiments until he finally gets a viable subject, you know, working with mice, cutting mice legs off and injecting it with lizard DNA until they finally get a mouse that grows its leg back. And he says, ah, I got it. So he injects himself with it, and sure enough, his arm goes back. But he had an unfortunate side effect. <laughs> he turned into a giant lizard man creature who had only yeah. evil continually. When prior to that, you know, he was pretty philanthropic. I mean, he was a nice guy. He was just trying to help people. Uh, so it went from being a nice guy to this terrible creature that had only evil continually in his heart and mind. I'm going, wow, once again, it looks like Hollywood gets it, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and I believe that the extra-biblical text, again, confirmed that, specifically in Joshua 4.18 and Jubilee 7.24. You know, what you read out of uh, Joshua, that, um, that's pretty explicit. Right, yeah. Um, you were saying during the intro that... Uh, the 
earthquake, uh, what do you call those, the seismographs around the world were um, showing the vibration of the entire planet? Yeah. Um, it, did you find this, like, evidence of this on, on the web, on one of the government sites? I actually, uh, uh, when I saw what Dutch Sense was doing, I recorded it. And um, that video is available. If people want to see it, you can go, on, you go to YouTube and in the search window uh, type in the Omega Plan with a question mark. The Omega Plan question mark. And okay. if, you, if you do the Omega Plan, the Omega plan uh, it's about a 22-minute video, I think, uh, that I put together that shows a timeline of events that, that I believe illustrate the end time Omega plan. And if you just do that search, it's the first one that pops up. My screen name is uh, Captain Mang, C-P-T-M-A-N-G, was my high school nickname. <laughs> so uh, um, you'll see that video there. And it's probably about halfway into that video that you'll see the actual seismic servers that I was looking at live on the net at the time when it was uh, happening. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Nimrod and how he fits into all this. Sure. Uh, you had mentioned, in the, and this is something that I've heard others speak about too, you had mentioned that he is the same as Gilgamesh. Yeah. Uh, and I know that there's a few that believe he's also the same as Osiris, um, and so on and so forth. How does uh, Nimrod, who is the builder of the Tower Tower of Babel in the Bible, uh, how does he fit into this whole thing? Oh, he's uh, 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 the centerpiece, in my opinion. Um, the first uh, teaching that I put out publicly is called Mythology and the Coming Great Deception. And, uh, again, it's, I posted it on YouTube for free. People can go check it out if they want. Uh, Mythology of the Coming Great Deception. And in that DVD, I trace the history of, of gods from different cultures and really build a case for how Nimrod is sort of a foundation figure. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's sort of like the equivalent of the, the uh, blockbuster video superstar, you know, of the Asia world. Uh, you know, we could say, um, Harrison Ford was Han Solo. Somebody else would say, no, no, he wasn't. He was Indiana Jones. No, he's right. a fugitive. You know, he's not a fugitive. <laughs> no, no, he's this guy. He's that guy, you know, and name off all the various characters he's played in, in movies, you know. Nimrod's kind of like that. And, and when you understand what's going on at the Tower of Babel, okay, he's the emperor of the world, and there's probably, I would say, on the high side, maybe about a thousand people on the planet at this time, because it's not too long after the flood. Uh, you get Genesis 11, and the whole world is gathered together under one language. Just to interrupt, that's what that's what Luke styles himself as emperor of the world. Uh, <laughs> I never said that, but it would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, this particular emperor uh, had a building campaign in mind. And he gathered his people together in the plains of Shinar to build a tower whose top might reach into heaven. Well, first of all, it, it was not about height. Um, a lot of people think, well, you know, he's just trying to build a really tall building. And look, God didn't freak out when we built the Sears Tower or the Empire State Building or the World Trade Centers or anything. He's not concerned with height. You're not going to reach into heaven with a tall building. I, I believe it was probably more of a much shorter structure that was... Uh, probably a ziggurat-type structure that had a top that something was built in this thing that we might consider to be akin to a stargate, 
to use kind of the modern vernacular, uh, that, that they could go through that would rent the veil between the seen and the unseen and to get into heaven. Now, if you go into Joshua, Joshua gets into a lot more detail and tells you that there were three camps that had been divided up, with each that had an assignment. One cap, camp, once they got this thing built, was to go in and assault heaven, you know, uh, wage war in heaven. And then the next group was to go in to the throne room of God, and their assignment was to kill God. I mean, think about the audacity of these people, you know. But that's what they thought. And then the third group was going to come in and set up their own gods in the Holy of Holies and take over. You know, that was, that was their big plan. And God had a uh, unique judgment for each one of them. One of them, he turned, I believe the first group, uh, ended up turning on themselves, and they killed themselves with swords and spears and whatnot, and bows. And uh, really interesting, uh, the group, I believe it was the group that was uh, thinking that they were going to uh, kill God, maybe. It was either the one, no, the one they are going to set up their own gods. That group, uh, he, it says he turned them into... Uh, creatures akin to apes and elephants, or made them like apes and elephants, I think is the way it's worded. And what I find really intriguing about that is I, when I was a missionary in northeast India, in that little sliver between Myanmar and China, uh, one, two of their primary gods were the, was the elephant-headed god and the monkey-headed god, which incidentally Obama carries around in his pocket as a good luck charm. Yeah, um, that, yeah. Yeah, so I'm like, huh, I mean, when you, especially when you see the gods of the Hindi, Hindu pantheon, they are animal-human hybrids, uh, lots of them. And so it just kind of makes you wonder, you know, why do they have so many of these gods and so many varieties, and they're all so weird-looking, unless possibly those gods were based on something that may have been real, and Joshua's telling us how they, they got that way. Uh, just something to think about. I'm just putting it out there, that's what it says. Um, and then the other group is the one that God uh, confounded their languages. So, think about that. If the whole world gathered together under the leadership of Nimrod, the God uh, broke them up into people groups and, and, um, and split the language into 70 different languages. And so all of these, you know, let's say there's a thousand people on the earth, they all went away in groups, in 70 different language groups, talking about the same guy. So now Nimrod, who's, I, I'm not convinced is a, is a real, it could be his name, it, it very well could be, but I think it may be a title for him. I could go either way on that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, his name means the rebellious one. We shall rebel. Uh, but I believe that these different people groups went away in 70 different people groups talking about the same guy, so now he became known as Osiris as Apollo, as Gilgamesh, as Ninurta, as Ningursu, as all these different uh, Amraphel, is another one in the Bible. Um, different names that go back to this one one character. Um, do you think, uh, you, you've seen or researched the list of Babylonian kings, uh, starting with the very first, uh, according to ancient scriptures, uh, the very first Babylonian, of course I can't remember the names of them all, but the very first one supposedly ruled for like 20,000 years, and the yeah. next one... 35,000 yeah. years, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, an extremely long length of time. So do you do you think that uh, they... I mean, what, what, do you, what, do you, what kind of beings do you think these Babylonian kings were? Do you, do you, I mean, does it tie in with your whole uh, Nephilim theory, or...? Uh, 
Well, that's another really interesting question because it depends on how much we can take those uh, Sumerian texts, for instance, as truth, uh, and, and how much of the interpretation of those texts that we can consider to be true. Um, Dr. Michael Heiser has gone to quite a bit of length to show that Zechariah Sitchin uh, was full of it, <laughs> that he was oh, yeah. a, ter- a terrible scholar that, you know, just was making stuff up basically, and did not properly interpret the text. So you got to kind of start questioning it at that point, you know, how accurate are those translations to begin with. Secondly, assuming they are accurate translations, how accurate is the record to begin with? Um, I proceed as a Christian from the premise that the Bible is 100% true, and I question other texts as to the validity of whether or not I should take that stuff as truth. I do believe that the current world that we're living on is six, well, about 6,000 years old. It, roughly, Adam was created, according to the Genesis account, about 4,000 B.C. Now, that said, I am not opposed to the gap theory. Um, there are elements... Are you familiar with the gap theory? Yeah, briefly, uh, kind of tangentially aware of it. I believe it's like... Uh the earth is destroyed and then reformed. Yeah, essentially. At a certain point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, from Genesis one two forward, we're talking about a recreation of the world. Um, I've heard really good arguments on both sides of it, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence uh, in that regard. But I can see validity in a lot of the arguments that, that I've read. Um, especially if we do allow for the testimony of other cultures that talk about this. And even in the biblical account, there's a guy, another research, um, uh, Elwell, uh, what's his first name? I can't think of his first name. Um, oh, anyway, something Elwell. He wrote a book, Douglas Elwell. He wrote a book called uh, Planet X. And he, I think he lays out a really good case for a pre-endemic world um, that it basically existed between Mars and Jupiter that experienced a cataclysm, a, a massive judgment, if you will, and a large chunk of that uh, former planet spun out of that orbit and ended up in this orbit, and that's what became without form and void that we read about in Genesis. The Earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Um and that's where the Genesis creation account takes over from there. And the rest of that planetoid is the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. He lays out a pretty good case, and he uses scripture, and he uses other ancient texts to prove his point. And, uh, you know, I would just point people to his research if they want more on that. So if that's true, if there's any truth to that, then possibly some of the ancient texts could be referring to some of those guys. Uh, if we say that the Earth is only 6,000 years old, then I would totally that would nullify any uh, claim to uh, an ancient ruler from 20,000 years ago, you know. Uh, So, you know, those are different options you have when you're looking at that. You still there? Hello? Yeah, yeah. Okay, kind of cut out a little bit. Um, So so it was uh, Zachariah Zitchin that was responsible for that translation of the chart of Babylonian kings? Well, that that I don't know for sure. Um, I would have to go look into it a little bit more. So, I, so yeah, I don't think that 
I don't think that was Sitchin. I think that was somebody else. Yeah, but, but I, I didn't know because I just had seen the chart on Wikipedia. That's yeah, like, yeah, that's that's something else. That, uh, that's not anything with Sitchin's work. Okay. Sitchin gets in a lot weirder territory yeah, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not a, a Sitchin fan myself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Rob, I wanted to talk about, too, kind of the importance of the 33rd degree parallel. Now, uh, yeah. this is something I can tell you that we've talked, this has come up on our show so many times in so many different ways, uh, dealing with, uh, well, actually the city that you're in, Dallas, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, being on the 33rd degree parallel on the assassination of Kennedy, uh, yeah, uh, Roswell, New Mexico, being on the 33rd degree parallel, uh, yeah. Charleston, South Carolina, where Scottish Rite Freemasonry was Founded, being on the 33rd degree parallel. Zona Silencia in Mexico. Uh, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. And, and so there's a connection with Mount Hermon and yeah. the 33rd degree parallel. What is the connection there? Yeah, actually, uh, there's another YouTube video. If people are interested, they could go on YouTube and look up um, the Mount Hermon-Roswell connection. It's another uh, hour and a half teaching that I've got up on uh, online. Now I, I got to give credit where credit is due. due um, the individual that uh, revealed a lot of things to me uh, through his research is a, a guy by the name of David Flynn, and yeah. he he had discovered that uh, kind of the center of the mountain range of Mount Hermon is uh, 33.33 degrees east from the Paris Prime Meridian. Which is interesting, you know. We go by Greenwich now, but uh, before that, it was Paris. And uh, in the occult and in masonry, that's known as the Rose Cross or the uh, Devil's Line. Um, and so, from thirty, uh, it's thirty-three point three two degrees from the Devil's Line <laughs> east, and thirty-three point three three degrees north. Uh, and you can go on Google Earth and look it up for yourself. Now, if you do go on Google Earth, you'll find that it's uh, I think it's 35.54 is the uh, east reference, and that's because you're going from Greenwich. Um, so but it's the only geographical landmass on the planet that just so happens to fit the number of the fallen angels. We know that uh, from Scripture that uh, one-third of the angels went with Satan, right? And so 30, you know, what's one-third of 100? Well, it's 33.33%. <laughs> So it's rather interesting that uh, the center of Mount Hermon, where the Genesis 6 experiment took place, is uh, like a crosshair. It's the only geographical landmass on the, on the planet that fits the, the number of the fallen angels as a coordinate. Now, you can go in the southern hemisphere and find another 33.33 by 33.33, but you end up in the ocean between um, the lower part of Africa and Madagascar. Okay. So uh, you, you end up in the ocean. So it's the only geographical landmass that fits their, their number. Now, of course, you know, we're looking at a post-flood map right now. So, you know, maybe you could say, what about the topography of the world before the flood? Well, okay, but I don't know where to go with that. So I'm just going to go with what I can go by. Um, the current topography on the planet, that's the landmass. Well, of course, you mentioned Roswell, New Mexico, also being kind of directly across from there on the 33rd parallel. And like you said, interestingly enough, here in Dallas is the 33rd parallel. And my first job, I moved down from Massachusetts on the 72nd <laughs> uh, parallel down to the 33rd. Um, 
uh, I think it's 72nd uh, longitude, if I remember right. Anyway, um, I moved from 72nd down to 33, and the first job I had when I came to Texas was for an office supply company called 33 Parallel. So it's kind of weird. <laughs> Back in 2003, it was like my destiny was being laid out for me uh, when I first got here because now, like, my world revolves around this kind of research and dealing with 33 and all that. So I really believe it's a direct parallel reference to, A, the fallen angels, the, the one-third, as well as uh, their activity beginning in Mount Hermon in the days of Jared. A uh, little anecdote here for you, Rob. I uh, mentioned this on the show before, too. As we had, uh, we've had on a guy named uh, Adam Go Rightly. I don't know if you're familiar. Are you familiar with Adam Go Rightly? No. At all? The king he, of Discordianism. Yeah, he talks about a lot of uh, weird kind of stuff. And uh, we talk about this kind of 33 motif going on, too. Yeah. Uh, we were talking with him, and, and that just kept coming up in our conversation. And uh, the next day, Luke and I are going to lunch from our workplace, and uh, we passed this uh, a restaurant, and parked in the, in the parking lot of the restaurant was a fire station that said number 33. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, remember, it's sort of like the calling card of the Illuminati and the Freemasons. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they love to flaunt that number. Uh, that and 72, in, and you'll find 322 pops up quite a bit as well. Um, in fact, I got a DVD called 322 Tetrads at the Time of Jacob's Trouble. And in the beginning of it, I talk about some of these numbers. And if you go back to um, the uh, shooting there in Connecticut, uh, Sandy Hook, right, yeah. after, right after Sandy Hook, like immediately, it was almost like the next day, a website popped up called Demand a Plan, and it had all the celebrities on there going, Demand a Plan right now is all about gun violence and gun control. You know, we need to get rid of our guns. And it's all these, such hypocrites. I mean, it's all these Hollywood stars who have all been in movies, you know, waving guns around, <laughs> shooting people in their movies. Yeah. Um, but they all say, you know, we got to stop you know, gun violence. And, you know. Well, on their website, and I just pulled it up so I can look at it right here, it says, uh, our efforts cannot bring back the uh, it, the 20 innocent children murdered in Newton, Connecticut, or the 33 people murdered with guns every day in America. I'm like, really? Really? Seriously? 33? You know, it couldn't be 31 or 34, 35 or 36. 33? Like yeah. the day after, like immediately after they got, a, they got a whole website up and a video produced already with all the celebrities on it. Like, come on. Well, the No Agenda podcast, uh, they have this whole motif going on about 33, too, and how it seems to pull, come, come up in different news stories, and they believe it's a code kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. It's like a, they have a little jingle. It's like, 33 is the magic number. Yep. So, uh, uh, I want to talk about kind of getting back into the Nephilim stuff and what has been going on with Indian mounds in the United States and digging in the people in the 19th, probably 18th century, 19th century, digging into Indian mounds and finding large bones and kind of, and I know that you've been kind of involved uh, with Elie uh, Marzulli and going out and looking at some of these, trying to find some of these artifacts. Can you kind of go into that with us a little bit? Yeah, I haven't done as much as he has. Um, he's really been quite busy on the road doing a lot of uh traveling and investigation for his Watchers DVD series. I think he's in Peru right now, as a matter of fact. Um, yeah. 
but uh, I live not too far from Rockwall, Texas. And it's oh, like, yeah. Right. It's like 45 minutes down the road or so. Um, and in my research, just going into all this stuff, looking into it, I found in Rockwall, Texas, is named Rockwall, Texas, because in the late 1800s, some dude was, like, I guess, digging a foundation for a house or something, and, you know, his shovel hit a rock, so he figured, well, I'll just dig the rock out, and realized, no, it's a, it's, it's a pile of rocks, and kept trying to dig around, and realized, no, it's a wall. Kept digging, and realized it's a really big and really long rock wall. Well, you know, it became quite interesting to everybody, so they, you know, made a full excavation of the site, and uh, eventually managed to punch through the rock wall at some point and, and found a room, and in the room, so the story goes, they found a cauldron that had the skeletal remains of humans in it, so apparently whoever was in there was a cannibal. And then, again, as the story goes, they found a skull uh, that was three times larger than any normal human skull. So, I mean, that puts the dude between 15 and 18 feet tall, you know, wow. uh, right here in Rockwall, Texas. And, of course, you're like, wow, you know, where's the evidence for that? Well, they put Lake Ray Hubbard over it. <laughs> they put a reservoir on top of all of it. And uh, when L.A. was here in Dallas uh, a year or two ago, uh, we tried to go out there and do some investigation for his Watchers DVD. I think it was Watchers 4. Um, but, you know, people either played dumb like they didn't know anything or, you know, they, they weren't very helpful at all. Um, they did find some people in the interview, them, so people could check that out on the, on the disc. But, there, I mean, I think it was Abraham Lincoln that talked. I think it was, I think it was Lincoln it was at the uh, Great Lakes area or something like that, or uh, Niagara Falls or something like that. He was somewhere in that area, and he was saying that, uh, you know, other eyes have beheld all this at the time when giants were on the earth or something like that. Uh, so there's an interesting, I apologize for not having the exact quote, but a quote by one of our presidents saying that there were giants here. And, of course, Steve Quayle has a book called Genesis 6 Giants, where he goes into great detail in a lot of these stories in various Indian tribes. And, you know, apparently the, the, the uh, practice of sticking up your hand and saying, oh, you know, uh, it was so that people could count your fingers <laughs> to make sure you yeah, have five. Yeah, I would say that, yeah. Yeah, five and not six, you know. But, uh, I mean, apparently uh, there's a lot of stories from the uh, Midwest and whatnot of various tribes of giants and and India tribes chasing giants in the caves and, you know, uh, killing them and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they're everywhere. And, you know, there's, there's not a lot of us doing this research. You know, there's kind of a small handful of us out there. Uh, and most of us have each other on their speed dial, you know. We talk to each other every now and then. And I would love to see kind of a collaborative effort where we can kind of all put our heads together and really see some, some kind of serious research done on this. Um, because the hard part is, if, if Joe Blow reports finding, you know, a 12-footer in his backyard, it's like the Smithsonian shows up or, you know, Men in Black or somebody shows up and takes all the stuff away and you never hear anything about it after that. So, I mean, it has to be done on a private level and well-documented. That's where kind of my heart would be as a filmmaker, to be sort of the, the camera guy on site, you know, uh, also having done the research, you know and to team up with some of these other guys. And, in fact, you guys can, you know, maybe pray with us about this, but um, in, when I wrote my second book, Archon Invasion, The Rise, Fall, and Return of the Nephilim, uh, I came across the, the story in Genesis chapter 14. I call it the Genesis 14 War. This is a war of giants. 
um, Josephus comes right out and tells you that, too. He says, this is a war uh, that dealt with the offspring of giants. It was roughly 450 years after the flood. We have the five kings going up against the four kings, led by Amraphel, who is Nimrod. And uh, Nimrod's right-hand guy is a guy named Keter Laamar, with his, like, General Patton on his side. And so the, the four kings, led by the three kings who are following Amraphel, beat the five kings by basically chasing them into the tar pits, or the slime pits, is what we read in Scripture. Well, Josephus tells us that the slime pits that the five armies went into is what, what that area was known as before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then it later became known as the Dead Sea. And so, uh, you know, I'm doing all this research, I'm writing all this stuff, I'm, I'm looking at various sources, both canonical and extra-biblical, as well as, you know, people like Josephus and stuff, and I'm putting all these things together, putting the locations together, and I'm looking at this, I'm saying, oh, man, I think the greatest archaeological find of all time is waiting for us in the lower regions of the Dead Sea. Because I thought, with all that bitumen and salt, they're probably extremely well-preserved armies, five armies worth of extremely well-preserved giants waiting for us to discover. And so I ran my research past Dr. Judd Burton, who is a, another Nephilim researcher and archaeologist. He looked it over, and he wrote back, dude, I think you're right. <laughs> and so um, we talked to some people when I was in Cape Town, South Africa, in Pretoria, South Africa, talking about this stuff, and uh, some people out there said, well, you put some numbers together, and we'll see what we can do. We'd like to finance such an ex you know, expedition. And so uh, it, I was at a conference in Lubbock, Texas, uh, last month with Dr. Judd Burton, Dr. Aaron Judkins, and Joe Taylor, who are all archaeologists and, and bone diggers, and uh, they're all excited about it. So who knows, but that's sort of what I've got in the works to try to find solid evidence of giants that we can report to the world. Just as an aside, what are your feelings about Bigfoot. I believe Bigfoot's probably a remnant of the Nephilim. I believe it's real. There's just, okay. I mean, there are plenty of hoaxes out there, I get it, but um, I think there are way too many documented accounts, you know, going way back. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in multiple cultures. I mean, you got the Yeti, you know, abominable, abominable snowman, you know, in the Himalayas and all that, and, and Bigfoot in the States, and various depictions of these creatures in different cultures that all look and sound for all the purposes to be the same type of creature, who incidentally seems to have sort of a conehead shape uh, skull. Yeah. So, uh, which leads me, to, again, I, I take a different approach than somebody like L.A. Marzulli. He, he kind of dogmatically, we joke about this, you know, we're friends, but we differ in this opinion. He believes in multiple incursions, I don't, so... You know, he ribs me about it every now and then, but uh, he he thinks that there was various incursions that led to the creation of the conehead skulls, like in Peru. Um, I believe that the conehead skulls in Peru and Bigfoot and whatnot are remnants of genetic seed that carried carried forward through the flood on the ark in the uh, genetics of the three wives of Noah's three sons. And the reason I believe that is because, A, there's absolutely no reference in Scripture or in any extra-biblical text to any other incursion. 
whereas the Bible clearly tells us that the giants we see after the flood were giants that came from other giants, Numbers 13.33 being most blatantly obvious, but all of the post-flood giants trace back to the people in Genesis chapter 10, uh, verses 6 through 20. They're the ites that the Israelites had to utterly destroy. I mean, you see multiple places in the Bible where God says, okay, you can go in that village, you know, and conquer that city. You can take the women and children and animals the spoils of war. However, when you go over here, I want you to kill the women, kill the children, kill the animals, utterly destroy everything. So, I mean, you kind of have a choice. Either God is schizophrenic and prejudiced and into random acts of genocide, or he's got a legitimate reason for saying that. And my research has led me to strongly believe that those were Nephilim cities that all trace back to the people, because the Bible tells you that. The Jebusites and the Amorites and Girgashites and whatnot, these are the people that we read about in Genesis chapter 10. And so I believe that those genetics, with no mention of angels anywhere, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, with no mention of angels anywhere, Amorites are mentioned 85, over 80 times in the Bible, uh, and uh, Philistines over 200 times in the Bible, both trace back to the people of Genesis chapter 10, with no mention of angels. So uh, when you look at the Egyptian giants, you have uh, Mithraim, who is Egypt, produce a son named Kaftor, who was the father of the Philistines. Well, what's interesting about Kaftor is he settled the island of uh, Crete. And in fact, Crete has been known in other, uh, by another name as the land of the Kaftorim. Well, Crete is where all of Greek mythology originates. <laughs> so I believe he's sort of the beginning of, of all that with the giants there. But when you look at the Egyptian uh, dynasties, you have people like Akhenaten and Nefertiti who both have very large, elongated coneheads. Yeah. And so, I mean, these people trace from documented so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so with no mention of angels. So I believe that the, the people in Peru are just remnants of Canaanites who fled the land during the uh, campaigns of Joshua and then later David and his mighty men where they were trying to rid the land of Canaan uh, of the Nephilim. And, you know, they got most of them, but... They didn't get all of them, and the Bible tells you that. And so I think uh, the Phoenicians and others, you know, they became seafaring folk that found their way to the New World. And then, I, you know, I think, we're, you know, we look at Bigfoot or the Conehead Skulls of Peru, I think these are just remnants of the descendants of those folk. So was the Conehead thing, was that, uh, was that part of being a Nephilim? I believe it is, yeah. I mean, what okay. else are we to do with, I mean, there are people who are Coneheaded, as a result of strapping boards to the baby's head, you know, when the head yeah. is still forming. But what's interesting, the difference between cranial deformation as a result of headboarding and, like, let's say, a lot of the different skulls that we find in Peru, it, not all of them, but a fair number of them, and I have two replicas in my possession of, uh, that were done from skulls in Peru, uh, have completely different suture patterns, for one thing. Like you and I, we have a, a frontal lobe, and we have a, a, a kind of a vertical line that goes. We have two parietal plates and the occipital plate. Well, these cone head skulls have a completely different suture pattern. Putting boards on a kid's head is not going to change the suture pattern. It's just going to change the shape of the skull. Mm -hmm. um, and also, some of these skulls have anywhere from 20 to upwards of 40% larger uh, cranial capacity. So, I mean, you could test a normal human person of about the same stature and get so many cc's uh, measurement 
for normal cranial capacity, you know, brain case, uh, and then measure another one of these conehead skulls of a person about the same size and stature, and find that there's 20 to 40 percent larger brains that were in those heads. <laughs> so uh, again, headboarding is not going to do that. So it begs the question: Why do people strap boards to their babies' heads in the first place? Well, I believe they're emulating something that was real that they had seen in the past. They're trying to emulate something that they it was naturally that way. Like I would say, uh, Akhenaten and Nefertiti were, for instance. Something that they felt was superior. They likely were. I mean, okay. if you figure 20 to 40 percent more brain capacity, I mean, what other abilities do they have? <laughs> you know, I mean, we typically think of three, basically three characteristics of the Nephilim: giant, six finger, and double rows of teeth. But I would say there are plenty of other characteristics we could we could associate with them. Conehead skulls and elongated skulls with 40% more brain capacity being one of them. Um, but I would also say that the animal-human hybrids are just as Nephilim as the strictly humanoid-looking ones, uh, you know, satyrs and minotaurs and centaurs and whatnot. I believe they are also class would be classified as Nephilim. I basically give a looser definition than perhaps somebody like Ali Marzulli or some of the others. They, they would say probably, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I, I would based on what I know of them, say that they probably believe that Nephilim is strictly the offspring of angels mating with humans. And I would, challenge, I would challenge that by pointing to Numbers 1333, for instance, and saying, well, what about these guys? These are Nephilim that came from Nephilim. No mention of angel anywhere. So, uh, and how else would you classify a creature with a completely different suture pattern and 40% more brain capacity, or how else would you classify a satyr, a minotaur, a centaur, or a mermaid, or what have you, assuming they're real? What, what else would they be? So I, I extend it to a definition of basically that which has been corrupted from the original kind God created it to be. The Genesis is very specific. Everything must reproduce after its own kind. So what do you do with a blended kind? What is that? I would call it an Ephilim. I, I can't help but laugh about the headboarding. It sounds like an extreme sport. <laughs> sounds like, extreme sport, yeah! <laughs> sounds like something we're going to see in the X Games here soon. Headboarding! <laughs> headboarding! Get your baby right now. Get your baby. Get aboard. Headboarding! <laughs> Let me ask you uh, the time that we have, Gil, and uh, tell us about the, your project, your uh, project with Seed. Yeah, thank you. Uh, seed is really what I believe God has called me to do. Uh, all of this other stuff is sort of a means toward that end. It's fact-based fiction. It's a TV series that I'm developing. Uh, it's designed to have 72 episodes. It'll be six seasons, 12 episodes per season. And uh, really, it's designed to talk about all of this stuff in a, in a fictional format, you know, um, it'll be fact-based fiction. So really what I've done in the last four years or so is laid the fact side of it, uh, built the, the, uh, the true foundation upon which the science fiction will, will rest. Um, and now that I've laid it, I feel uh, enough of that foundation. We're ready to redirect our energy and attention back on the science fiction. That's sort of my goal for 2014, is to really get into high gear with Seed once again. I've already written two scripts, I've uh, outlined 72, but I've completely completed two scripts, and a third one's uh, almost completed. And uh, people can go to seedtheseries.com and check that out. Um, 
it's meant to be a, a secular TV show, so it's not going to be preachy or anything like that. I will, of course, be writing from a biblical worldview because that's what how I'm wired. <laughs> but um, it'll it's not going to be like you're left behind or anything you'd see on TBN or anything. It's meant to be Lost meets Battlestar Galactica wrapped up in an X file. So okay. if you can imagine what made those three shows so successful and intriguing for people who enjoyed those shows, Seed will have elements of all of that and, and, and come across very much in the same way that those shows came across. Is this something that you're shopping around at the moment? Um, yes and no. Uh, I, I am shopping around, but I really, I, I actually really want this to be a grassroots effort. Um, there, the Internet's been a game-changer uh, in, in many ways, and True. with with social media and things like Netflix and Hulu and, and other things like that, there's really no reason for me to sell out to any Hollywood studio. ABC, NBC, uh, Fox, CBS, Sci-Fi, I don't need them. Um, and, and quite frankly, if I go to them, they will control my content, censor me, and they could cancel the series prematurely if they don't get the Nielsen Report ratings they want, and then the show's dead. And I thought, well, I don't want to take that chance. i got 72 episodes that I believe need to get out, and I don't want anybody controlling my content. So uh, I'm basically making an appeal to people who enjoy shows like Lost or V or, you know, Fringe or Battlestar Galactica or X-Files. If you like those shows and you're on board with what I'm trying to do, get behind it. We're going to put the control in the audience's hands and for less than the cost of, cost of a latte at Starbucks, you know, three dollars a month, um, you can help us make it happen. And you know, we're playing the numbers basically. If if we get three hundred thousand people to subscribe at three dollars a month, that's our that's our episodic budget. We have a one million dollar budget per episode to be able to produce something that would look exactly the same if you put it side by side as any show you've seen on TV. You know, right. those shows those shows actually have budgets of between two and three million dollars per episode, but that's Hollywood money. We've been able to determine here in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex area with the resources that we have here that we can do the same exact production value for a third the cost. It'll look just as good but it won't cost as much to do, but it's still a million dollars per episode. So I basically say, Hey, are you sick of your favorite show being cancelled prematurely? <laughs> I am. I can't tell you how many shows I've gotten hooked on, and then they cancel it at a cliffhanger, and you're like, ah! You know, you're never yeah. going to find out what happens to these guys. You, know, you get so ticked off. I'm like, well, fine. You know, uh, $3 a month, you can keep it alive. And if, if the show stinks and you hate it, well, stop subscribing. <laughs> if the show loves it, I mean, if the show's great and you love it, well, support it, you know? And uh, it, when you talk about the sci-fi audience, I think 300,000 people is a joke. You know, there's there's plenty of people out there that could get behind it. So, yeah, we're looking for investors as well. But the problem with larger investors is they tend to want to control your content as well. And so, if there's an investor out there who is who believes in what we're doing and trusts us to go with with what we want to do, then that's great. But we don't want anybody controlling our content. Good. Right. That basically means that uh, you're not a sellout. <laughs> more power. Not, more yeah. Not gonna not gonna sell out. No. Yeah, uh, good. Uh, good luck with that endeavor, Rob. And uh, we're we're out of time. I just want to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Uh, if you can stay on the line for us just a bit, we're going to close out this section. And uh, 
Anything you want to add, Luke? Yeah, ju- just a, a final thought here. Uh, what What are your views on why it would be important for the scientific or elite community to um, to hide the truth about the Nephilim and um, the history of like our origins? Yeah, well, I think it really comes all down to evolution. Um, because it, you know, if you can really show evidence of these things. Um, it, it supports the biblical narrative, you know. Um, however, you know, I, I believe that's that's one part of it. I think that in the time of Darwin, there was a need to change the paradigm, which would previously been basically a creationist paradigm. So you had to destroy the paradigm with this thing called evolution. But you'll notice things are changing right now, that evolution has proven itself to be bankrupt. And so now you got people like Richard Dawkins, for instance, one of the most prominent spokespersons for evolution out there talking about panspermia. You know, they realize evolution, okay, we know it couldn't have happened on its own, but maybe we had help. You know, ancient aliens seeded this planet with the ingredients necessary for Darwinian evolution to then take over. So now they've, they've already done a paradigm shift on the paradigm shift <laughs> to prepare us for what I believe is a coming great deception. And I think at that point, when they're ready, they'll release all that stuff that they've been holding on to and say, yep, we knew it all along. The Anunnaki were our parents. See, look here, and then roll it all out for everybody to see. And the evidence will be so overwhelming, but at this point, you know, the creation biblical account will be so far removed that now they'll move in and be able to validate their Anunnaki Sumerian account instead. Hmm. Okay. Just another alternative. Yeah. I, I think it's strategic. I think... I don't think they just hid it all away for it to never be seen. I think it'll, there'll be a time when they're ready for the unveiling, um, and, and then it'll be you know to their advantage to do it at that point. It could be the technology also, uh, as you mentioned before, we're talking about uh, the Tower of Babel uh, being some kind of portal or stargate. If that technology is available somewhere, I'm sure there's plenty of people well, that would want that. I believe it already is. I think that's what yeah. CERN. I think CERN uh, is a is a replay of Babel, in my opinion. Wow, that's that's a pretty interesting statement. We're gonna have to get into a whole new topic on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another show <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and a whole other show too. We didn't even hit Christmas, but that's okay. And <laughs> why you don't like Christmas? Yeah, well, we can we always do another one, man. I'd be happy to come back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, stay on the line for us. We're going to just close out this section. We'll be right back on Conspiranormal. All right, we are back on Conspiranormal. And, uh, Luke, I think your mind is blown, right? He started blowing my mind right off the rip. Started talking about red moons and decapitated statue heads and, and uh, uh, earth-wide, or, I mean, global seismic activity. Yeah. And he up with the uh, with the numerology like three two two, which I know is an important Masonic number, and you got seventy two and all that all that kind of stuff. You know, I feel like an idiot, but that's the when you when you guys were talking about that, I was like, man, that's a triad Thir- three thirty three point three, like you know three thirty three point three three. Yeah, three of those make a hundred. It's the first time I ever thought about right. that. I was yeah. like, oh man, that's yeah. a triad. You know, one third, and you talk about one third of the angels and all that. Yeah, just some, just all kind of like you know, food for thought. Uh, and as always, we'd like to have our guests come on and give their views. Um, 
I mean, it fits in with all the kind of stuff that we've talked about, like with Scotty Roberts and Adam Go Rightly and mm-hmm. a few other people. Uh, Dr. Future even came on and talked about some of that same kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, Rob seems to he makes all these connections, you know. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a young Earth creationist kind of guy. You know, I believe in a creation, but I don't subscribe that it was like six thousand years ago. So uh, from so from there, I would kind of part ways with him. Uh, you know, yeah, I more believe that all that stuff did happen. Like he's talking about, um, what what hit me was the kind of explicit way that the Book of Jasher describes the uh, genetic manipulation. Yeah, you know, yeah, messing right. around with cattle and swine and all that. Kind Jasher of stuff. sounds like the book that we should be reading, man. Yeah, there's some debate about Jasher whether it's a forgery or not. It is mentioned in the Bible, though. Uh, you know, th- there's. You know, on on either side, there are people that just want to stick stick to the Bible and what's in the Bible, and then there's people that want to kind of go to the Book of Enoch, which right. is an extra biblical text, but yeah. just kind of sheds a little bit of light. You know, Enoch is something that's uh, that that hasn't been proven to be an actual ancient book. I'm uh-huh. not as sure about the Book of Jasher in and of itself. Well, this is the hard part because you know, from what I understand, the documentaries and the origins of Christianity and such that I watched. Um, they're finding these scriptures and caves and stuff like that that were hidden, and like you said, it's hard to find a forgery. You know, you really don't know. I mean, the, none of our scientific methods apparently seem to be too accurate, like the carbon dating. And yeah, I mean, so really, all you can do is just parallel what what they have found with what already exists in the in the Canaan and everything. Sure, I, I think the Book of Enoch was such a odd book. Um, in early Christianity, I think it was added into some of the biblical texts. Um, but around, I think, about like the 4th century or so, it was taken out because it was just such an odd book. Uh, he did mention kind of briefly that the Ethiopian church actually uh, has, it, still has, it. has it in their canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also like 2nd Enoch and 3rd Enoch and all this kind of weird, yeah. weird kind of stuff. Um, you know, I believe that, you know, I've often equated the pre-flood world to, for lack of a better term, and I think it's a horrible term because it's been so beaten to death, is like Atlantis or like this ancient civilization that existed before. Mm-hmm. And that it could have been so technically advanced that it was able to actually do things like genetic manipulation. You know, and, and I've even thought of a theory before, too, that uh, during the human creation process, you know, because you know, I've said my belief on here before, and that is that there was primitive beings already on the planet, and they had, whether it's alien or angel or whatever, they had DNA yeah. upgrades. I'm not specifically stating that it was angels or aliens. I'm just saying that there was DNA upgrading going on. Whoever did it is responsible. Um, I think that that fits into some of the things that you've told me, which you believe that it wasn't necessarily a physical alien. It could have been something like Mm trans-dimensional coming down and messing around with mankind or messing around with the women on the earth or whatever. I mean, that fits in so well to... um, you know, to what's what's in the Bible and some of these other extra texts. Right on. 
So, uh, I mean, I think you've kind of changed. Like, like it's just not the aliens coming down and saying, "Hey, take me to your leader." Right. And most importantly, take me to your women. <laughs> yeah, it was man. actually this incursion of it was actually this incursion of angels. Uh, I blew my mind when he was talking about the four hundred and fifty foot tall. Yeah, that's. Nephilim. I didn't know that. That's uh, the original Nephilim. I mean, that's, that's that's like that's like bigger than Godzilla. You know, it, it's like you know, it, and, and what I think about when I hear that is, okay, we're going to go through these trials of human creation process and. One of our first trials as a failure is the 450 foot mm-hmm. human, you know, and and we got it wrong. We need to do it again. So they got smaller and smaller, and and they were all fighting each other too, which that's uh, pretty much in line with you know these wars of the gods and these things that are going on in mm-hmm. in mythology, not just Greek mythology. Um, you know, Roman mythology is more of a of a outgrowth of uh, Greek mythology, but. I mean, in ancient India, you had stuff like the Mahabharata talking about the gods mm-hmm. and ships fighting each other. Uh, these ideas of kind of like ancient nuclear weapons and these things. It could be that they were they were so they were so advanced that they were just fighting each other left and right. And then you know that to me um, goes into this idea of the whole Atlantis thing or an ancient civilization. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Atlantis is kind of an umbrella term for any kind of right. ancient, ancient, advanced civilization that was here. Yeah, and and I and I think personally, from things that I have read, and I'm not going to go in into it like as much now, but uh, that that was about ten thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Somehow, like at the end of the last ice age, that civilization was destroyed and wiped out, mm-hmm. and that that actually was the flood. So there's a little bit of a chronological. Um, mix up mix up somewhere uh, you know and that that could in, in my opinion you know that could totally fit in with the things that you're talking about with the with the uh, Babylonian king list and you know somebody ruling for 35,000 years and mm-hmm. all that so but anyway I think I'm about ready to call it a night sir okay and, yeah. uh, there, there was one more thing uh, when he mentioned that the planet used to be shaped differently and uh, part of it uh, during the during the black the dark void times or whatever mm-hmm. in the Bible, um, it was really I never heard that theory before that part of the planet broke off and, and is now the asteroid belt. Because <coughs> I know a lot of uh, well, New Agers believe that there is a planet called Tiamat or something like yeah, that. Yeah, what he was them. yeah what he was saying was was that the planet there was a planet between Mars and Jupiter that this guy had written about, and I believe this is like a you know a Christian writing. That he had written about that that, that that there was a judgment, like a massive judgment, where it was totally blown up, and that part of um, it became the Earth, and then the other parts were like oh, the asteroid belt. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's entirely different than what I've heard from the the Zitchin like New Age, you know. Right. Yeah, but it's it's there. similar. Then, like the Tiamat was around, they, and yeah, it they, never they formed just or said it blew that up. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. Yeah, that's that is the same theory then. Right. It's yeah. It's kind of similar. But uh, is there anything that you want to talk about or mm-hmm. what we call it tonight? Nah, man. Go for it. You got your your own theory about the uh, about the watchers and why they came down. Uh, look at our women. <laughs> yeah, man. They they were in their ship and they were uh, just cruising around, like just like we cruise in our cars, just on a larger scale. And they looked down at the planet, you know, microscopic vision, and saw some hotties walking around, you know, double Ds and all of that. And I mean, 
who who wouldn't land? Like, who wouldn't land on? I mean, and they, they all had their togas on, you know. Yeah, they had their togas and they were showing cleavage and they were wearing like golden crowns and everything. And the oracles were up in their little towers and so forth. Man, you know, and they looked down and they're like, "Damn, just a planet Damn, full of girl. Yeah, dude, planet full of chicks. It's like, and you know, and there's no men around. No, that's the best part. All right, well, join us next uh, time. We're going to be taking like a three-week break uh, while we uh, go through Super Bowl, which I will be working that night. But February 9th, we're going to have on uh, uh, Elia Marzulli and uh, to kind of continue kind of the same vein that Rob Skiba was talking about. And we're going to talk about some other things with L.A. too. We'll talk about his Peru trip some more. We'll get some more elongated skull action in here. So uh, <laughs> Woo, yeah. join us next time on Conspiranormal. You don't know who Smoke Joe Bates is. You can just go screw yourself, man. I'll kill you right where you stand. I ain't even playing around because Smoke Joe plays a mean banjo on the south end, and I love every minute of it. If you don't chew Big Red, screw you. Let me tell you something else. If you don't watch NASCAR, don't even talk to me. Because it should have been... Uh, Dale on the Hart Jr. up there winning with the crown, okay? And I got both, I got, I'm double fisted with uh, players in both hands, okay? I got Bush in both hands, and I love NASCAR more than I love my own damn kids. And that's God's all awful truth. Yeah, my girlfriend's from Eastern Kentucky, she dips tobacco, so what? I'll tell you what else, it should have been uh, Dale Earnhardt up there on that cross, too, not Jesus Christ. I mean, I love Jesus in my heart and everything, he's my savior, but. Dale Earnhardt, man, he can drive the shit out of the car. 600 laps, I mean, that takes a lot of effort, okay? You gotta take, you gotta keep that in mind. And another thing, let me tell you the kind of shit my brother, I mean, the kind, I'm sorry, the kind of stuff my brother's been through. He, he went, he's on meth, man, he was digging in the trash can at one point for some raw chicken strips or something. He could have been up for three days carving suicide notes in his stomach with a feather pin. You don't even know what it's like to have a rolling meth lab. It is Saturday night, brother. We're going to get some trouble tonight. I want all kinds of pills and oxys and fucking lore. I mean, I'm sorry, freaking lore tabs. I'm on uh, hydrocodone, man. I'm just feeling good. And I hang, I hang microwaves for my job. That's what I do. I put in refrigerators and microwaves. Uh, New Sunoco just opened up down the street. And Jimmy Johnson was down there signing autographs and I uh, got a, me a free case of beer for going down there and showing up making an appearance so that was pretty cool
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.